Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 13 of Painting the Corners, the podcast of baseball and international affairs. This is our first podcast of the new year, and before I get started and introduce the guests, I just want to go over some logistics. Uh, I want to apologize because there's a little bit of ambient noise in this podcast. We recorded at my home in New York, and sometimes, as you may have seen in film or other times, when you, in New York, there's some noise in the background, there's street noise, so I just want to apologize for that. At one point, my landline rings, and... It's been so long since my landline rings, it rings so rarely that I didn't even think to unplug it. I had everyone turn their cell phones off and all of that, but the landline rung, so I apologize for that. Also want to let you know about a couple of book events. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball is available at Amazon, at Powell's, at other online places. You can also get it at the Temple University Press website. I will be doing a discussion, an opportunity to buy books, get it signed at the San Francisco Baseball Academy on January 27th at 7 p.m. That's on Geary and Blake in San Francisco, not far from Geary and Masonic. Uh, and that is where the Bridge Theater used to be. For those of you who are old-time San Franciscans, you'll know where that is. The next day, the 28th, which is Sabre Day, I will be in San Leandro with the Lefty O'Doul chapter of Sabre discussing the book. If you're interested in going to that event, please contact me directly, and I'll give you the information because it's a little more complicated. I've also scheduled another book event in Chico on the 30th of January. That's Chico, which is in Northern California, further north than the city. And I'm, I'm getting the exact details of the time, the name of the bookstore, the address, all of that. And I'll get that out to you. I'll put that on Twitter. But if you're interested in attending that, you can't wait and you just want to get the information soon, please feel free to contact me. I'll give you my contact information in a minute. A couple of other things. I was on the kind of end of the year wrap for Represent NYC, which is on... Manhattan Neighborhood Network. That website is MNN, so MaryNancyNancy.org. And it's a great, uh, it's actually a very good program and a good site. And we have a long discussion about what to expect politically in 2017, both nationally and state and local here in New York, what we might expect from Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, and of course President Trump, and what that means for democracy in America. I also have a new piece on the Huffington Post, my first of the year, called Civil Society in the Age of Trump. And for those of you who follow the former Soviet Union, particularly Georgia, my new Georgia analysis piece will be out hopefully by, by, by Orthodox Christmas. I don't want to send out an analysis piece on Christmas uh, in, in Georgia, so I would wait a day. And that's going to be about four big questions that, to think about regarding Georgia this year. Again, my name is Lincoln Mitchell. My website is www.lincolnmitchell.com. And as a New Year special, you can have free access to all the old uh, podcast, all the previous contests, as well as all my writing on baseball and on uh, politics and on the former Soviet Union, on domestic politics for the next, uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. My Twitter account is at Lincoln Mitchell. You can access this podcast, I don't know how you got to us this time, but on my site, www.lincolnmitchell.com, through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you go to iTunes or Stitcher, please rate and, and review the podcast. That's very helpful for me. And, and if you like the podcast, it's a good way to keep it out there. As usual, I have two guests for this episode. The baseball guest is Jay Goldberg. He is the proprietor of the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse, which is a really unusual baseball-related shop and gallery located in Greenwich Village here in New York. Jay has an interesting background, which he brings to bear on this discussion. He started out as a political consultant. when he worked on In, in that role, he worked, among other things, on mayoral campaigns for Ed Koch in New York, Tom Bradley, who was a longtime mayor of Los Angeles, 
in that he was working with David Garth, a kind of legendary uh, political consultant at that time. He worked on Senate campaigns for Arlen Specter and John Hines, and on the presidential Democratic primary campaign for Walter Mondale in 1984. Walter Mondale uh, won that primary, was the nominee, and lost to Reagan uh, Reagan's re-election bid in 1984. In 1991, Jay started the Sportsmakers Agency, which is an athlete was an athlete representation and sports marketing firm. He managed image campaigns and negotiated various contracts for such baseball legends as Mike Schmidt, Bobby Thompson, Ralph Branca, and, and Don Larson. So a lot of real kind of legendary 1950s New York baseball figures in there, as well as Mike Schmidt, who uh, was one of my favorite ballplayers who never played for the Yankees or the Giants. Those are my two teams, but I always loved Mike Schmidt. always thought he was a very cool guy and just a fantastic three-time MVP, one of the probably still the greatest third baseman ever. Uh, Jay also managed and promoted all aspects of the innovative and highly successful Russians Are Coming and Russian Tornado 1 and 2 hockey tours. And we talk a little about Jay's thoughts on Russia later on in the podcast. The clubhouse recently hosted their 122nd author event since opening seven years ago. I've been to several of them. And if you like reading about baseball and you like baseball books and you like being around other people who are interested in those things, I, I really recommend that you attend these events. You get to meet the author, get a, buy a signed copy of the book, have fantastic baseball conversations with people. And the Burkina Baseball Clubhouse will lead off their 2017 calendar on February 9th with a special event featuring the owner of the Field of the Dreams Complex. I'm now realizing I may be out of town for that event, but I try to get to as many of the Burkina events as my schedule allows. Now, if you want to find out more about Burkina, the schedule events, what book events are coming, even what, what, what cool products they have, or if you want to you know, interested in some kind of baseball product, uh, the website is bergino.com. That's B-E-R-G-I-N-O.com. Jay's Twitter handle is at Bergino Baseball, B-E-R-G-I-N-O, and baseball is spelled like baseball. Today's international fair guest is Timothy Fry, the Marshall D. Shulman Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at Columbia. Tim studies Russian politics, autocracy, and corruption. His new book, Property Rights and Property Wrongs, How Power and Norms Shape Economic Conflict in Russia, will be published in May of 2017, so in a few months, by Cambridge University Press. He also co-directs the International Center for the Study of Institutions and Development, ICSID. And um, he was a high school pitcher who apparently did very well until uh, batters figure out how to hit the curveball. Usually you talk about guys who were good high school hitters until pitchers started throwing, throwing the curveball. Tim is the opposite. Now, Tim is unusual among people who talk and write about Russia because he actually knows a lot about the country and has spent a lot of time there. So I really asked him to bring some of those insights to bear on this conversation today. He's now beginning to work more on the study of autocracy, of how studying autocracy helps us understand American politics. Obviously, this is a response to what, the, the Trump phenomenon here in the United States. And he, Tim and I have had some discussions about that, and I have a lot of interest in that as well. If you want to learn more about Tim, you can visit his website, timothyfry.com. Fry is F-R-Y-E. Timothy is the usual spelling. And his Twitter is Timothy M. Fry, again with an E at the end, at Timothy M. Fry. Jay and Tim, welcome. Pleasure Thank to be you. here. So this is our first Painting the Corners of 2017, so it's good to start a new year with such great guests. Jay, I want to begin with you. Um, your work brings you in contact with pretty intense fans. I know this because I, I put myself in that category and also because people who are not super intense fans have left events at your shop and told me, wow, intense. But I thought I like baseball, but those people are a little nuts. Um, but I, I'm not meaning that critically because I, I think myself a little nuts too. Um, what if for these people, for people who are really true baseball fans, who read you know, books, 
dozens of books a year who who care about you know who don't just want you know a baseball cap but want something that's a little more interesting a little more historical. What does baseball mean to them? What role does baseball play in their lives? What have you kind of learned from your experience? Well, you definitely uh, you had the perfect word uh, intense, which I guess is good and bad. Uh, some of them, I, I don't want to uh, insult anybody, but. Uh, and I believe me, I love baseball. I couldn't have a shop dedicated to, to baseball otherwise. But some of them, I think, take it a little too seriously where it's, it's the most important thing in life. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, th this, is, this is maybe not the best example. Well, well, first let me go back to what you said as far as the people who come to the, sh to the events. Th those are very intelligent. I put you in the group. Very intelligent, in, in, uh, intense fans. Very well read. They have other interests, which is what makes the discussion so interesting. Because when it comes down to it, a lot of the discussion is real. Like any great baseball book or a movie, it's really not about baseball. About history or yeah. music or whatever. Else. Exactly. We have a book. We had a book. Uh, Tim Wendell wrote. It was about 1968. Yeah, it was about the World book, Series. Yeah. But there was a lot going on in 1968. Right. That's really what the book was about. Uh, so those people, I, I love that community that we've had in the clubhouse. On the other hand, for example, and this would touch on a lot of other areas, which maybe we can get into later. A, a couple months ago, uh, a guy comes in, oh, my son's going to play in the major leagues. So I'm assuming, I had Sam Folds, who's, who does play in the major yes, leagues, his uncle came in, and so I'm assuming it's something like that. He's in AAA or something. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, where does he play? He gives the name of a, of a town I've never heard of. I used to be a sports agent a long time. I figured, all right, maybe the minor league teams are different now. But I said, oh, where, where is that? Some place in Connecticut. I'm like, oh, what, what league is that? And the kid was 11. <laughs> and I, I had to stop. And I tried first. I, I wasn't going to say anything. And then I said, your son is going to play in the major leagues. And they said, yeah, he strikes everybody out. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to set this guy straight. <laughs> yeah, Rather you, than sell him some expensive. Yeah, he wasn't going to buy anything anyway. So I just tried to explain to him how difficult it is, it is to go from that to one of the best people in the world at what you do. Even the worst major leaguer was the best player in the state of Kansas or something, you know. So... It, it runs the gamut, to answer your question. That's who walks through the clubhouse door. Plus, New York walks through the door on a daily basis, which I love the city above all things, but I'm not <laughs> sure if running the shop, I love it that way sometimes. I love it when people have a, I don't want to insult anybody with this answer. Right? And it's kind of like in class when the student says, well, I know some people aren't going to like this question. You know, <laughs> That's when you my, really my, know they're going to say something worthwhile. Says, I know I shouldn't tell this joke yes. to you. <laughs> That's when your ears perk up. They don't, right? <laughs> but, but I'm the kind of... So that, that, that's the, the delusional side of this, right? I right. Mean, that's, but there is this kind of... I mean, these... I know that for... I mean, I have... There, there are, I mean, it's a cliche, but, there's, but cliches are often based in truth, right? There are... You know, baseball plays, when I've been there, right, even just to browse, right, or when I've talked to other, other intense fans in other settings, you know, various Facebook groups and things like that, this, this institution plays, a, plays an enormous institution in baseball, plays an enormous role, right? People are thinking about it. People are, you know, remembering 
the summer they were 14 by what their hometown, what their Cincinnati Reds, if they're from Ohio, you know, did that year or something like that. But they're also charting growing older through that right. as well, you know, in, in an important way because we don't have, you know, especially, you know, work is can be engaging but is often a source of stress and this is not always that source of stress. So how does, what is your experience with, with that angle? Well, that's, that's a beautiful angle, really, when it comes down to it. That to, to see the joy, because it is like that for me, it's like that for you, I'm sure, that's for, for anyone who loves baseball with a capital B. And maybe that's a little differentiation too, is that, like you said, somebody could be a Cincinnati Reds fan and, and remember their childhood or, or their dad telling them about the Reds. But the people who, who where it really uh, is a beautiful thing to watch are people who just love baseball. I know you, you've spoken about your children. They're... they're Youth baseball, and I could say I could go to watch any little league game and and love it sometimes more than a, a a major league game in some ways, and I think that's part of it too. But what you said about it that it does trace, it's kind of like sometimes where they say uh, if you love a musician, uh, his music, uh, her music is the soundtrack to your life. Right. It's kind of like that with baseball too. Well, some George Lewis said baseball is a soundtrack of my life. Oh, all right. Years ago. All right. Not my credit. favorite writer on a lot of other <laughs> issues, but. <laughs> All right. Well, he uh, that was a very good book, though his his uh, yeah. baseball book, uh, Men at Man Work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's true. So I think it does. It, it's also this, uh, and one of the things I've seen in the clubhouse is it brings a community together of people that would never have anything else in common, but they have baseball in common. It could be we and people don't even know this, but I, I know who they are. After a while, there could be somebody sitting there who's a multimillionaire at the top of their profession and the person next to them is barely a half a step above being homeless. Uh, and they're having this beautiful discussion. I'm listening to their discussion before the event, after the event. It's a beautiful discussion about baseball. They're completely equal and with this passion that they share. And that's... I'm sure there are other things in the world like that too, but probably not many. And, and it seems like the structures around baseball make that. There aren't many, right? And, but the, and, and the structures around baseball maybe make that a little bit more possible. Because there's, you know, when, I mean, I don't go out. I, I found, I was in California in March, maybe, and I was in San Diego for a day. And with an old friend of mine, he's a huge baseball fan, and his daughter's about 10 years old, and she... Because I was left, she didn't have a glove or something. She's left-handed, he's right-handed, but I'm left-handed, so you know she could use my glove. So the three of us went out to play catch, and and you know I said, you know gave my glove to use, and and she was doing this, and she's a big like she's a big Giants fan. She watches all the games with her father, you know all of that. And after a while, she looked up, she said, "Wow, playing catch is fun." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, that's why you know we're fifty, we're 50 years old and we're still doing." <laughs> but but, yeah. no, I was gonna say I think baseball. It has such a long history. You know, you think of like the NBA or the NFL. These are much more recent inventions. And I remember growing up as a kid, what attracted me to baseball is strange but true baseball stories. Yes, I had that book too. <laughs> I loved that book as a kid. I read it, I read it. I guess I'll have it and I read, there's a, a book, The Baseball Life of Sandy Koufax, which is much cherished in the Fry family because uh, m my brothers and I each used that book 
for book reports three years in a row. So we think that there's nine book reports somewhere in Hartsdale Elementary School. If you, if, you, if, you, if you break the rules on your middle school book reports, right. you end up a tenured professor at Ivy League University. Only if it's about Sandy Colfax. Right. But that's very unusual for a Gentile family to... Yeah, well, I don't know. And it was very funny. My sister found the book in a used bookstore a couple of years ago and, uh, and, and you know, got me a copy of it. So it's it a joke. So I have to put it on the syllabus. <laughs> Well, it's actually, it's interesting, something that you said about the, the, the long history of baseball compared to other sports. There's a guy who hasn't played a baseball game in almost 85 years, and he's still the most famous baseball player in the world, maybe he's still the most yeah, famous exactly. athlete. Babe Ruth has not yeah. played since 1935, I believe. You know. <laughs> and everybody knows Babe Ruth. There was a survey done in around early the 21st century of who is your favorite baseball player, right? I was doing research on this, and the answer, not surprisingly, was Derek Jeter. Right? If you think about what was going on in the early 21st century, that's not a surprise. The answer, number two, was Babe, was Babe Ruth. Wow. <laughs> right? In 2001, 2002, something like that. Right. That's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. But that, that history also, I, I think part of the appeal is there's so, is, is there so much there to talk about. And it's, been, it's not just that it's been going on for 120 years, but it's been written about for 120 years. So, so you can, if you have, I think there's an absurd, and I speak for myself a little bit, absurd obsessiveness to this, right? Where, you know, I, I had a, um, somebody who you know uh, was, I was giving my, he was, on, he, was he and my son were teammates on a, on a youth baseball team. And we were, I was driving him home, we're giving him a carpool or something. And I said, uh, and he said, and my, and my son said, my friend can tell, you know, who won every World Series. And who uh, was inaugurated in the Hall of Fame every year, which is rather extraordinary. And I said, and, and I said, that, that's really cool. And I started testing him. And, and, and then he looked at me and he said, when you were my age, could you do this? And I said, <laughs> and I said yeah, but there were a lot fewer World Series <laughs> when I was your age. But, but also, there's so much there to dig into that, that right. if you want to be a, a, a big fan, there's so many places to go, whether it's the numbers or the literature or the biographies or just learning everything about a team. Absolutely. And I've had people... Uh, I'm a member of Sabre, I think. Yeah. You are too, I think. And uh, so on their, New York, their annual Sabre Day, each chapter hosts their event. So the New York Casey Stengel chapter, every year they have a trivia contest. These guys are insane. It, it's almost bordering on like Rain Man. <laughs> and it gets a little scary. And one guy said to me, he goes, what's wrong with you? You know, you with that clubhouse, all you do is have these like authors there. He goes, why don't you have like a trivia night? And I'm like, I have to be honest with you. If I ask the question, which player hit the most home runs on a Tuesday whose mother's name was Mary, somebody will just know that answer. Like they'll know. That's of no interest right. to me. I find that of no interest. Other than it's kind of like a, a, an insane thing, but I don't find it interesting. The, 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 the book discussions get so layered, that's where it hits so much of, of the history of baseball and the history of America, really, yeah. is what it's about. You know, I grew up about an hour from Cooperstown. Oh, wow. So uh, I used to go there as a kid, and they used to, you know, they would have the, uh, the Hall of Fame game. And it was great because it was a tiny stadium and, you know, you could really get to meet the players. So we used to go, you know, every once in a while and we could really get a sense of the history. And I even pitched there at Doubleday Stadium 
gave up two long home runs, but we won five to four. It was a high school game. Yeah, we were Class A and they were Class C, so it was smaller. But it was such a kick to be able to, you know, to to play on uh, on Double Day Stadium. And actually, there were quite a few home runs hit uh, because it's such a little bandbox. Uh, the ones hit off me, I think, would have been out anywhere. They were very long. But <laughs> any park, including Yellowstone. Right? Right. <laughs> you know, the park at, at West Point is called Double Day Field. Is it really? Yeah. Because of the story that Mayman, well, we know Double Day did yeah. go to West Point. Right. I mean, he may or may not have invented baseball there, but they claimed that. It's, called, it's a beautiful field. So. No, baseball was invented in Russia. You, you know, yes, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, because, because you brought this up, Tim, yeah. maybe we can, I want to ask you a question about Russia. Um, and feel free to weave in the baseball yeah, yeah, angle yeah. If, if, uh, if possible. But I, when, I, when I try to look at international politics, yeah. international affairs, countries, I, I always believe that you have to, to really understand why any country is doing what it's doing. You have to look internally as well as externally. Yeah. So... What do you think we need to understand about Russia's domestic politics to help us better understand what Russia and, and, and Putin are doing in the world in the national context? And when I talk with people about Russia, I, I often find myself playing devil's advocate, in part because I think people's views on Russia are often so politicized and so one-dimensional. So everything that happens in Russia is bad on one level. Or everything that that Russia does that's bad in the world is because the U.S. must have done something uh, to provoke them. And if that were the case, my life would be so boring. There would just be not, nothing interesting to write just about. Just be reading that Sandy Koufax that's, well, that's not so bad. Um, so, you know, for me, what makes Russia really interesting is that, you know, it's not Sweden. You know, it doesn't run perfectly. Uh, it doesn't, uh, it's also not Zimbabwe. And, you know, there's what I try to give people, impart to people, is that Russia is a complicated place. And, you know, you could sit down with Putin for, you know, for a week and, you know, still only scratch the surface about what's going on uh, uh, in Russia. So, um, I mean, a few things I, I think are important. One is people have been focusing on um, uh, the instability that's going to come in U.S.-Russia relations because of uh, Donald Trump taking office, never having held office, with this mishmash of anti-Russian and very pro-Russian advisors. Um, and I think people think that, oh, Russia is just a stable place and it's always going to be that way and Putin's always going to be in power and you know, we don't have to worry about you know, how predictable uh, Russia is going to be. But uh, you know, Russia is too rich, it's too well-educated, and it's too urban to be as corrupt and non-democratic as it is. Right? So in some sense, Putin is somewhat swimming against the tide uh, uh, in Russia. Also, you know, the economy hasn't grown for five years. It's been basically stagnating. And I don't care what kind of regime you have. That's not a recipe for, uh, uh, for stability. Um, there'll be elections in uh, 2018 uh, in Russia, and elections even in an autocracy, or perhaps even especially in an autocracy, are really dangerous moments. That's when autocrats are more likely to use power, where there's more likely to be protest. And one of the things that we've seen is, as uh, Putin has been unable to say, look, the economy's doing well, life is getting better, disposable incomes are, 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 are increasing, he's been able to kind of use the anti-Western card to uh, gin up his legitimacy and his popular support. And I wonder how long you can really keep that up, 
you know, on the one hand, you know, uh, uh, yes, you know, you can always point to things that are going on in the world that are maybe against Russia's interests. Um, but Russians are smart. They've heard this song before. And at some point they're going to say, yeah, well, okay, maybe, maybe the U.S. is out to get us. But hey, Vladimir, you know, uh, I, you know, we need some growth here. We need some jobs. We need, some, uh, we need a development plan. Because that's really what's been missing in Russia for the last four or five years is that there hasn't been an economic plan other than, hey, let's hope the oil prices come right. back up. Uh, and that's not a long-term strategy that I think is, uh, you know, really viable. So. Can it get from here to there? Like, is, what does that path potentially look like? Well, I think... Politically as well as economically. Polit politically, is, it's the politics, stupid. It's not the economy. I mean, people in Russia know what they need to do to make the economy grow better, right? They need to use the money that they've gotten from the oil assets and invest it in building stronger institutions and investing in, 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 in uh, human capital, uh, you know, open up the borders to trade, try to move away from reliance on uh, hydrocarbons and natural resources, which is not hard, uh, which, is, which is very actually, you know, which is hard, but they could be doing a lot more uh, than they're doing right now. The problem is that politically, this is really difficult to do in part because the interests that benefit most from uh, having a, an economy that's really rooted in hydrocarbons are the ones that really you know, control the political system. So you have a very kind of narrow elite which is really benefiting from the status quo and a large mass of people who are not. And managing that problem politically is really where the problem is. What, how, how do our perceptions of Russia, and I want to just raise a couple of things. I can't think of a single leader, and I'm, I'm sure I'll think of something when I'm done saying this, but a, simple, a, a single foreign country outside the U.S. Mm -hmm. where it is personified through the, through the leader quite that much. Yeah. When people use Putin, Moscow, and Russia interchangeably. interchangeably. Exactly. Yeah. And the second thing, which, yeah. is, which somehow, maybe this is just a linguistic quirk, but it seems like there's something there. The, the use of the phrase, the Russians... Right, as opposed to <laughs> Russia. We don't say the Chinese. We don't right? say the Americans. We don't even say the Israelis. Right. And there's certainly a lot of kind of, yeah. you know, you, you say, or the English, unless you're yeah. making a joke about tea or something like that. You, but, you, but people say the Russians. Yeah. And there's, it's, it, it's, it's the same way that Republicans will say the Democrat Party in this kind of adolescent way because they know it bothers people who are Democrats. But there's something about that language as well. So, 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 so why, how, do, how does, is that, is that just a hangover from the Cold War? What, what drives that? And, and is that important or is that just me being a linguistic No, I, I, in my well, Russian politics course, I have a list of do's and don'ts. And on the first day of class, and one of the things I say is, if you use the term the Russians, <laughs> uh, you know, you're, what you're implying then is that all Russians think alike. Right. And let's, think, let's unpack that uh, a little bit. You know, do all Americans think alike? Does, do, does everybody in this room think alike? So I, I think... It, you know, I'm not sure where uh, it comes from. So although, you know, probably this is very politically useful to say those Russians, you know, in, the, in that tone of voice as if, you know, by implication uh, uh, they are, you know, guilty of something. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's a problem, uh, in part because it, it, it allows us then to say the Russians and Putin, and that's all we need to know to understand uh, Russia. And Putinology has been uh, not very, been widely practiced, 
uh, and not very effective in trying to understand uh, what's going on in Russia. It's almost as if you know, Putin is responsible for every pothole in Omsk. Uh, Russia you know, expands 11 time zones, it has 80 plus uh, subnational units, uh, and uh, you know, to think that there's one guy in Moscow, however popular he may be, However powerful he may be. Uh, however powerful he may be, is able to, you know, pull a string and make things happen. I'm sure, well, I, it's been a while since I sat down and talked with Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, <laughs> but I imagine that from Moscow, he sees himself as thinking, my God, how, could I, how do I get things done in this country? You know, you have this rapacious bureaucracy, you have, uh, uh, you know, interest groups that are bent on you know, uh, taking advantage of the economic situation. And the levers, his levers probably look a lot more dull uh, from Moscow than they do from Washington. But don't you think he also kind of plays this letat say Putin oh my God, game yeah. a little bit by, 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 by building this global persona? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, with uh, the visuals around that and, and, and somehow when he does those... You know whether it's the hockey game where he magically scores six goals, but you could certainly yeah. you could certainly imagine that Obama, you know, when he was well, he's still president, but as as president at any point his term might have visited a high school gymnasium where people play basketball, yeah. and he, he likes to play basketball and taken a few shots, yeah. and and you could certainly imagine that maybe some sophomore in high school maybe didn't guard him that aggressively. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it's not unimaginable in American right. context, but right. what is unimaginable kind of is that that would become a global yeah. meme almost. Right. So, right. so he's playing, he's right. manipulating that perception as well. Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, it cuts both ways, though, because I know a lot of well-educated Russians who are just very embarrassed. Oh, sure. I mean, they are just embarrassed. I would hope so. this, <laughs> is, this is what our great leader, you know, spends his time doing, you know, playing, uh, you know, scoring But it helps people outside Russia think maybe that is all I need to know about Russia. Because he's such an outsized personality. Yeah, I mean, look, the uh, um, uh, the Putin uh, PR machine has been very effective, I think, in projecting this image of Putin without the shirt on, Putin as the one who gets things done. And that's what politicians do, right? That's their job, is when things are going good to, to take credit, and when things are going bad to blame the government, right? And, uh, you know, this is what Putin does. So the president is very popular in Russia, and all the problems are uh, shifted onto the government. So, so, and when you control, you know, have such great control over the media, and have such a dominance in the political stage, your ability to do that is much better than it is in lots of other countries. So, so if, if stop me, stop me if, if, if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the kind of mainstream American opinion on this, outside of kind of what we... The craziness and the confusion that Donald Trump yeah. brings that the Trump brings to this is that Putin is reacting to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the perception of Russia's uh, declining status in the world, which is often has this odd kind of pop psychology right. element to it. Right. Um, to do these things in, in Crimea, in, in Eastern Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, right. and, and now of course in the United States, but also in, right. in parts of Europe. Um, but 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 your argument where you started is is that. This is about him shoring up his support domestically. Right, and I think often those uh, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, the Baltics often get lumped together. Yes. And this is all, either is A, some part of some master plan uh, whereby Putin is, is you know, seeking to rebuild the empire. And I think it's much more of a uh, 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 kind of spontaneous taking we'll advantage get to that of a events. Bit. And I Later. think 
I, I, I think Crimea is a very different animal than the Baltics or the Georgia situation, where the Georgians were not uh, uh, innocent either in, you know, Saakashvili ran on this idea that we're going to, you know, take these, uh, you know, parts of Georgia back into the country, and Putin was able to play on that. So I think there's an easy lumping together of all these different things that, uh, you know, Crimea is very important to Russia. You know, Georgia much less so. Right, Abkhazia uh, is a symbolically very important. Symbol, yeah, Crimea symbolically. Is, 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 is kind of practically speaking very important. And, you know, in the Baltics are, these are NATO countries, and the Russians are well aware of that. So this is a very different game than Eastern Ukraine. Uh, yeah. uh, so I think those things often all get lumped together as if, oh, yes, this is Russia and Putin is this master chess player. I mean, if he was a great chess player, Yanukovych would still be in power in Ukraine. Uh, the Eurasian Economic Union would be this viable political and economic institution to rival uh, uh, the EU. So, you know, I think, you know, there's often this, anytime Putin does something that we don't expect, there's a sense, oh, he must be this great chess player because, you know, Russians are good chess players. So, so right, right. <laughs> I mean, what year, what year did Putin take power? Uh, well, he came to power in 2000. Uh, uh, he was initially, when uh, President Yeltsin uh, decided to step down, he named uh, Putin as his prime minister. And then that really put him on the inside track to become president uh, uh, in 2000. And... One of the things that people, I think, forget about Putin is his first three years in power, um, you know, he did a lot of policies that uh, liberals in Moscow and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, people who are concerned about governance and corruption all thought were good. You know, there was reform of the tax system, reform of the labor code, there was, you know, attempts to build institutions, you know, and there was wide agreement across the political spectrum that the Russian state needed to be made stronger, right? It, it was too weak. Yes. That was the problem. So Putin came in and, you know, for a few years, uh, you know, he did that. And it was really only with, you know, the, 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 the sharp increase in the price of oil that then allowed him to do what, you know, autocrats do in oil-rich countries when the price of oil goes way up, which is to really consolidate their power. So I don't know, you know, again, I don't know that you would say Putin, the Putin who came to power in 2000 had this master plan that by, you know, by 2008 he was going to be this all-powerful autocrat because his, his policies in his first years were very different than what they were later on. And uh, I definitely don't want to use the phrase the Russians. Yeah. I don't want to fail the classroom. No, no, no. But uh, I was in Russia in 93 and 98. Oh, fantastic. But only in Moscow. Uh-huh. So I was only there twice. It was on business. Yeah. Only at that time. The sense that I got from the people that I was de that I dealt with basically, or that I met, this was pre-Putin. But the feeling that I got was that the Russians uh, like a strong leader, in some ways different than how an American would view a strong leader. And Donald Trump. Yeah, maybe now it's changed, <laughs> although half the country doesn't want that type of thing. Yeah, right. And I'm sure in Russia, right, as right, you right. said, it's, it's a huge country. Right, right, right. From my right. experience in yeah. Moscow, yeah. in the business world that I was dealing in, which was, was related think, to sports, yeah. they loved that, I don't mean him, he wasn't yeah, in, yeah. in power, but they, they respect, they seem to respect strength a little bit more yeah. than an American, yeah, I a think typical American. What... Um, uh, First, the, the 93 and 98, these were two 
uh, of the real low points in the 1990s, because in, in 1992 you had hyperinflation, where people's savings were wiped out. In 1993, things didn't get much better. Um, so you re in 1998 was when the financial crash happened. Were you there in the fall, or were you there in the summer? I was there in the summer. In the uh, summer. Oh, so right. summer wasn't already so bad, but August was this, you know, horrible time where the, you know, the currency fell by, you know, by you know, two hundred percent. I think what people, the, you know, whether I think people in Russia, like in many countries, like stability, right? And the nineteen nineties were such a time of political, economic, social instability, um, and that was aggravated after what had been you know, the Soviet Union for all of its problems, it was a very stable place. Until right? it wasn't. Until it wasn't, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, people knew that, you know, you would get a job, you know, that you right. could get an apartment, that, you know, you had access to health care, uh, you know, there are all kinds of limitations and the quality of these services might not, not be so great and, you know, your political rights were contained, but this was a stable uh, uh, system. So I think the 1990s really, you know, went from, you know, this extremely stable to this highly unstable place. So, you know, I can understand the, the interest in creating some kind of stability. Uh, you know, whether you do that through a strong leader who, you know, pounds his fist on the table or through, you know, a political system that helps resolve conflicts in a way that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of allows for some kind of representation and accountability. Because what's funny about Russia is, you know, if you say, um, if you do pu public opinion surveys and you ask many Russians about, you know, how do you feel about democracy? Oh, we don't like democracy, you know, because democracy was what we had in the 1990s. Okay. And I know that was bad. Um, but however, you know, do you support, you know, the right to choose your leaders through free elections? Oh, we like that. Uh, free speech? Oh, of course. You know, right, right to you know engage in in free assembly? Oh, yeah, we we like that too. It's just democracy that we don't like. <laughs> so you know, there is this. You know, I mean, in some ways, the you know, there's a kind of much more nuanced sense of uh, you know what you know democracy is uh, in Russia, and you know, and uh, and also uh, striking how badly we branded the term democracy, right? We associated with oh, right. in Russia the failed Yeltsin uh, operation, but in also in Iraq, right? When when oh, yeah. uh, George W. Bush was president, and there were you know a war in Iraq, and he kept referring it to as a democracy. The rest of the world right. said, "I don't want that." Oh, that's right. 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 So it, it's a striking because right. we talk, we 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 speak so much about this, but we really bungled that. Yeah, and you know we don't know a lot in social science. I, I'm, I'm the first to admit it. You know we all work hard, but you know, these are really difficult problems uh, to work on. However, one of the things that we're pretty confident about is that it's hard to build a democracy in an oil-rich, poor, uh, unequal, sectarian uh, uh, country like Iraq. Especially so, when you try to do it on the cheap. <laughs> especially when you try to do it on the cheap and impose it from, from outside. So this was, you know, overdetermined that this was going to be a failed strategy. And I think, you know, Lincoln knows a lot about democracy promotion, but I think, you know, the brand of democracy promotion would be much better served by recognizing that Afghanistan... Uh, you know, you could put a Westminster-style parliamentary democracy down there tomorrow. It's still going to be poor. It's still going to be isolated. It's still going to be corrupt. Right, and that has to do with the branding of democracy, not democracy promotion, right? Because here, what, what right. I mean, we've presented democracy to the world as the magic bullet. Yeah, bullet, right. But right. also as something that a country is democratic when basically 
you know, the President of the United States says so. I mean, that's right. how the world perceives it. And, and right. we got yeah, I mean, there are many, Russia like, and, and there, there, there is also survey evidence from Russia which says, you know, do you think you're living in a democratic country? And people say, oh, you know, we have elections and, you know, my political rights, you know, they, they don't seem to be violated, you know, uh, you know, in part because they're not really exercising right. them. Like most people in most places, they're not, you know... And, uh, and one of the things I've learned from working in a lot of countries, including mm-hmm. Russia, is that when you're sitting in it, I mean, and this is something, you know, we hope we can still say this four years now in the United States, but when you're sitting in a country with a free media, right. right, I mean, you say, you think to yourself, well, if there was an unfree media, you would know it wasn't free. How would that really, but influence people? Yeah. And then you wonder why people who watch Fox News all day think the way they do, right? So, so the power of an unfree media right. is extraordinary. Yeah. And it's not something that is easy to understand until you talk to people who've experienced it. I, uh, I well, the best job um, I'll ever have uh, was uh, being an exhibit guide for the U.S. Information Agency in 1987, 88, and 89 uh, in the Soviet Union. Wow. So we traveled around to six cities, um, Tbilisi, Tashkent, Irkutsk, Minnegorsk, Leningrad, and Minsk. And we basically just stood there with a microphone and literally 8,000 Soviet citizens would come to our exhibit and ask us questions uh, about life in the United States. It was the best, it was the best job I'll ever have. Wow. I was delivering pizza One of the things that you know, I, I remember is being in Magnitogorsk, which was the city that had been basically closed since the 1930s to foreigners. Uh, and then we have this you know, big uh, you know, exhibit of 24, you know, mostly young Americans come to this exhibit hall and we're sitting there with a microphone. And this Russian woman comes up to me and says, a real live American. <laughs> I never thought I would see a real live American. You know? And you know, that was 1988, right? So it was a, a while ago. But you know, we're not talking right. you know, 1888. Right. So the, uh, what, you know, but at that time, you know, the Soviet Union was almost, uh, you, know, uh, you know, hermetically sealed from you know, any kind of you know, foreigners, RFV, you know, we had Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, but it really targeted, you know, a small group. And we saw, I saw really the power of, you know, the ability to shape uh, people's worldviews. For example, so the best question I got, somebody said to me, you know, you have this horrible thing in the United States called unemployment. You know, we don't have that here. Um, but I also understand that you have the, you have the want ads, you know, people, so how can both of these things be true? You know, and I thought, what a great, you know, question. Right. So, you know, the person, that they've got received the, you know, the hardcore propaganda, capitalism means unemployment, and that's bad. But, you know, I'm also, you know, I have free agency, you know. Uh, I'm also out there gathering my own information. I learn these other kinds of things, and what I'm trying to do is square these, these, these two kinds of facts. So, you know, what I've learned is that, you know, propaganda doesn't produce like a linear effect of, Yes, I was exposed to this, you know, propaganda, therefore I believe it. You know, it's often, you know, the effect of propaganda is either to cloud your views about something or increase your uncertainty um, or to just, you know, make you question something that otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't have questioned at all. So. Where did the people come from who went to, the, who, who went to these exhibits? Well, it was very interesting. So we had, uh, you know, often very ordinary Russians came because uh, Soviets. Uh, you know, Soviets, that's right, because we actually we were actually true, because we were in 
Georgia and Uzbekistan as well as in, uh, in the Russian Federation. And, uh, you know, so it, it was very much open, um, you know, open admission. Uh, but also political activists would come and try to get us into debates. Often they wanted to get us to take their side against the, you know, the Soviet government and we would you know, try to be balanced. We also had provocateurs come and ask us uh, you know, questions about U.S. policy in the Middle East, for example. And uh, once it really backfired where this you know, kind of fresh-faced young college student came up and started asking me questions about the Middle East. This was in Tbilisi. And the people gathered, around, <laughs> the people gathered around her, her and they said, wow, they prepared you really well to ask these questions. <laughs> when she realized you know, that, they, that she'd been caught, she kind of put her tail between her legs and kind of, kind of walked off. So I, I think also just as, as a, a caveat to that story, in 1988, if you, I, I mean, if you had said to people, what are the, what's the overrun in five years this country not oh, existing yeah. anymore? Right. People would have said, are you crazy? <laughs> there or here, right. right? Not That's right. And, and that speaks to, I, I, think, I think, your earlier point about the stability, yeah. well into the late Soviet period, That's right. the perception of stability was still very strong. It also right. speaks to just how institutions function and, or right. don't function and how fast that right. can happen. And also, this wasn't that long ago. As That's right. Point. And yeah, also, for me, it, it's made me much more guarded to, to look at Russia today and think, oh, you know, this is the Russia that we have, and this is the Russia that we're going to have. Right, we'll always have. And conversely, getting back to the United States, it's also made me more guarded to say, hey, look, you know, we've had this, you know, I've had 52 good years of democracy, you know? Right. I've enjoyed them. It's been a good run. Uh, uh, you know, let's see what happens next, you know? So you just are well, much I mean, more tuned you know, and, to and, thinking and of not the to get too much into the weeds of the United States, but... Our first election for president with universal suffrage was 1968. Yeah. Wasn't that long? It's our lifetime. Right. right. I mean, before then, we did not have in any meaningful way universal right. suffrage. Right. right now, with uh, 2016 major not to have been our last, but we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to see what the Supreme Court and a few state legislatures have to say about that. Um, speaking of change and, and, yeah. and kind of the games time can play, Jay, how do you think being a fan has changed? Over the, over the years, and how do you see that in your work? I mean, we, we're in this changing technological environment, change. the, the role of baseball as, as a cultural institution it's, has changed. How, how do you, what do you see? That, that's a great question that, that, that could take uh, weeks to answer, I think. Uh, it's changed in many, many ways, and I don't, I'm 56, I don't want to be, so I saw my first game in 1963. My first game I remember was 1964. Our first game I remember going to was 64, but uh, it's changed a lot in, in that time. And for the better, I'm not so sure, in, in just in my opinion. And I don't mean the game, but I mean the technology. I think, well, let me put it this way. I think the current commissioner is fixated on time of game. Right, which is, the, to me, is so much energy and such not a very important question. Yeah, which I think has the potential to be disastrous if he's going to keep pushing it that way. Uh, what is the difference if a game takes, to, uh, uh, if it gets shortened by four minutes? It's not really, I, I never quite understand. It's not like, oh, we're going to take something that's taking way too long and we're going to, it's like a cliff note version, right. you know. But it's not the, even a cliff note version. Right, it's going to be, all right, we'll shorten it by four minutes. You know, they did those studies or whatever, and the guy's not stepping out of the batter's box or whatever. Oh, yeah, we shorten the game by four minutes. 
What's going to really shorten the game, if that's really what he wants to do, is get rid of all these commercials, which obviously is never going to happen. Mm -hmm. So they should... And I think what they do, in some ways, is they focus on the negative and they put that in the average Joe's head. So now everyone is like, oh, the game is too long. I don't think people really thought about the length of a game that way until they started pushing it to the average fan. The game's too long. The game's too long. Oh, yeah, the game's too long. Right. I, I don't want to sit here it's, now. It's a, strange, it's a strange thing. I mean, also, the easy way to solve that problem is start the game earlier. Right. <laughs> Which they're not going to do either. Solve the problem. You know, or right. certainly not have more day games. Or they're, right. they're never going to do it. Particularly this. in the playoffs. Right. Like but, right. They'll, right. They'll, and that was one of the things, I mean, I remember that vividly, speaking mm. of how it's changed. Mm. Uh, you know, transistor radio, I hate <laughs> to say it, but for, I don't even yeah. know if people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the little ear thing That's and, it. you know, that little great box. I remember, like, sneaking that in in class because it's a 2 o'clock game and I have to... Right. And the teacher probably knew what was probably asking me like what was happening. And the, you know? the, the other thing is that, is that if you're on the West Coast, this doesn't matter. Oh yeah, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. The game the game ends at midnight here. It's nine right. o'clock there. You can function the next day. Yeah. Right? Oh, so that's a New Yorker's view, I guess. No, so, yeah. There's a lot of East Coast teams, but it's yeah. No, you know, it's, it's true. I'm, I'm struck because when I talk about my book and even at, at, at your uh, mm -hmm. event. That's the question I get the most. And it's so, first of all, the book, I don't even talk about the book. I don't think it's important. And I think it is really a case on focus, of focusing on, you know, you can, I don't know if you can solve the problem, but you can discuss it forever and you can tinker with it. But the bigger problems, I mean, the bigger challenges facing the game, I don't see. Right. And I think that by focusing on that, which my, my sense is the commissioner is definitely focusing on that. And I think he's going to really dig deep until he, figures out something, but it it then brings clocks into play. I mean, one of the beauties right. about baseball, which is so different than anything in the world, really, there's no, they used to say, Roger Angel would have the beautiful thing, you know, there's no it clock. Lasts forever, he's different. Yeah, right. yeah you, and it doesn't, it's not, there is a clock now, and there's going to be another clock next year, mm -hmm. and the year after, I'll keep coming up with different clocks. I, I hate that. And in some ways, some of these changes, now, Maybe I, um, I'm wrong. They do have to get kids back into the game. But I don't, personally, I don't think that's not why they're into it because it's too long. Let me put it this way. If that is the reason, baseball is history. Right. Because mm -hmm. if it's a Twitter world and, and an instant world and, and everything has to be like that, then the game is done. So it doesn't matter what they do. To me, it would be more of, we're not going to change. Yeah, we're going to have everything changes. I understand that. But this is where you go to relax for two and a half hours, three hours, whatever it is, and you get away from everything else. This is the one place in the world you can go and just sit there and be in, in heaven, as close as you get to it, for three hours. Right, but that's or four hours. <laughs> or, or four hours or whatever. But when you're out of, That's a better way to market it, right? That, oh, our games are too long. Don't bother. Coming. Exactly. I would do the exact opposite of how they're marketing it. Now, maybe that doesn't work either. I don't know. But I think the way they're going, if they're going to be in a race to get into this time race, like everything else in the world, if everything's instantaneous, I'm afraid baseball eventually will be gone. But I think at some point, that too will be gone, as we know. I mean, you know this a lot more than I do. Your book, not to give you another plug for the, your great book. I plugged my book enough. <laughs> But I think that's a real danger. Uh, you know, I think in basketball, you know, uh, the problem is the last two minutes right. 
takes so long. And there, I would love to see them say, look, only one timeout in the last two minutes or something like, let the guys play. You know? well, so, actually, you know, though, something you just said, it, it brought something to my mind yeah. in a different way. Yeah. I, I completely agree with yeah. you, which is why I, I don't even watch basketball anymore. But uh, I was at this, and I could say this because it was public. I was, I went to this, I was invited to a private event with the commissioner. Private event in the sense you had to be invited. But... It was, basketball commission or the baseball? No, the ba- I'm sorry, commission. the baseball commission. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that he brought up as a great challenge, he said, if you have, it's now game seven of the NBA finals, the last two minutes, yeah. you have, not putting the time into it, but you have LeBron James and Stephen Curry. Right, we're not going to talk did, about game seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have these two great players going head to head when the game and when everything counts and everybody's watching. In baseball, you pick two great aces, from one from the National League, one from the American mm-hmm. League. The ninth inning, they're, they're nowhere, they're, who knows where they are, but they're certainly not on the pitcher's mound well, anymore. Well, except, except for that the closer often is, although this yeah. year, the guy who got the final three outs for the Cubs to end their drought, I don't know his name. <laughs> <laughs> and he might become a good pitcher someday. Right. Yeah, they, he, he, he's barely on the team. Right, but yeah. Chapman right. should have been. I mean, except for that uh, Roger Davis hit the home run and all of that. But, I, but, but to me, that's like, saying, that's like saying the problem with Mexican food is that they use too many avocados. It would be like the, the head of the Mexican Food Association saying that, or the, or the, the, the head of the Chinese food. The problem is we have too much rice. I mean, this should be the selling point. Right. Right? I mean, I mean right. it is, you know, Bucky Dent, uh, for example, right. you know, Bobby Thompson actually was more of a slugger than people realize, but right. he wasn't a great star on that team. Right. He was one of their stars. But that somebody, you know, uh, Don Larson, that somebody can have that moment is baseball strength. Absolutely. And, and it's so, if you look down the list of like World Series MVPs uh, or, you know, National League Championship Series right. MVPs, a lot of times, like, who? Right. Right. You know. Cody Rock. <laughs> that's, that's part of the beauty. Did Stanley win one? No. No, no, no. 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 Who, who Brian Doyle. Brian said, Doyle. Right? No, no, Brian Doyle did he not. He did not win. He, 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 he did very well. 78 World Series. Yeah. Brian Doyle, because Billy Randolph was hurt, had a great... World Series, but Bucky Dent, who had an even better one, right. won the World Series MVP. Yeah, certainly not a Hall so, of Famer. So, right. well, yeah, right. One Reggie, step up. Right. From, Although previous year Reggie Jackson did, right? Yeah, it, that but, happens too. But I think, I think that, that to me, because we talk about being a fan, right? I mean, it, to me, what is boring about basketball is that every game, basketball, is it almost, with a few exceptions, yeah. every game is tied when you're going to the final two minutes. But it's close <laughs> enough to being tied, right? What makes baseball special is seeing, you know, Mario Rivera protecting a one-run lead in the World Series. It doesn't happen every game. So when it does happen, you know, you're excited about it. Right. So, you know, if, if every game was 3-3 at the end of eight full innings, mm-hmm. that would be interesting. Right. You could start that. And also sometimes... You'd the game if you right, stop starting that one. And then there are those times when a team could have a seven-run lead in a game six and blow it or, or whatever, you know. Right. Or, you know. I mean, I watch replays, and I'm, full disclosure, I'm a Mets fan, I watch replays of the 86 when they do those specials of the game six and when when the ball goes through Buckner's legs and, and Vince Scully's yelling and you know Ray Knight is coming home it's it's as if I had never seen it before it's like how yeah, did they do this he's gonna feel that. yeah there were two or even before you know there were two outs two strikes the Mets were down the, the Red Sox had 12 pitches to win that World Series which and they couldn't do it it's and I could just watch that over and over. Like, how could that one, how come not one of those pitches went a different yeah, yeah, yeah. way, you know? Uh, but, but it also seems that, that, to kind of take a step back, that 
what, because not everybody, I mean, baseball has this weird, I think all, maybe all sports, but baseball for probably more, you know, and, and this is, I think, what's changing. It used to be that because there were, frankly, fewer things to do, baseball played a bigger role in the culture, right? Right. So everybody knew who was in the world. The World Series, something like a third of American adults would watch. I don't know the exact number, but a huge number, right? Now, there are people who have a passing knowledge, but there is this not small group of people who are super intense fans, right? The ones that, that, that we're talking about, or even just big fans. And for those people, the appeal of baseball is that it's not football or basketball. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, there's no replay. You know, right. Well, I, they didn't need replay. Like, right. football right. has replay. But what we, do we, know? we have the game with the clock where it's always tied. <laughs> That's right. right? Right, exactly. You know, we don't, why would you make baseball that? And if you do, do you lose something that actually makes it right. special, that has helped to play this role, allowed it to play this role in this culture, in the culture over the years? Right. I would say so, but yeah. I'm not the commissioner. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like I played football in college, and uh, among my father was a star basketball and football player in college, and uh, you know, so I'm you know should be you know very you know into football in a way, and you know I'm not in a way that I have been in a long time. And among my friends and guys I played football with, you know, very few of their kids are playing football. I mean, that, that's just like a because huge... Because of concussions or... Even, you know, the concussions have, have accelerated it, but even before the concussions, you know, a lot of people just thought, you know, do I really, you know, want my kids to be doing this? I think it's... I think it, the concussions is part of it, but even before that, people began to... You know, is this really good for my kid right. uh, uh, to, to be doing that, even without the medical uh, evidence? And I wonder how, you know, regionalized, you know, the the flow of top football players going to come, you know, Ohio, Texas, the South, the South. Yeah. Uh, but you know, among well, as long as baseball doesn't resonate with the yeah. African Americans, well, yeah. they're going to leave a big they're going to leave a big space open. That's right for football. That's right. If that changes, football's going to be in trouble. Right. I mean, basketball too, but basketball because of the height so issue. So why is that? Why? Is I mean, why did that gap open up? I suspect for a lot of different reasons. Teams, ballparks moving to the suburbs mm-hmm. at, at the kind of height of the white flight and then moving back to the cities. By the time they moved right. back to the cities, the cities were, the ticks were too expensive and right. those areas were getting, were getting white anyway, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's part of it. Baseball has become more expensive to participate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, oh, yeah, the, the, true, the yeah. cost of play is, is, is much higher. Uh, and that to, with, the, with the disappearance of the sandlot, yeah. it requires a level of parental involvement that is hard yeah. if you don't have a little spare time and money. Right. And so, so that, that is, you know, baseball is not so popular for white kids anymore. Right. Right. And are you surprised how many kids come from middle class uh, backgrounds? The exception in the lower income, where we see a lot of people, is, is Latinos, right. um, particularly. Right. In a city like New York, where our Latino population here is heavily Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, right. but these are cultures that make Americans seem un- completely not interested in baseball. baseball right? right? I mean, right. They, they love baseball, so it's right. a deep part of, of who they are and their culture, and it's their favorite sport. Right. But that, I, I attribute it to to a lot of those things. Then, then it becomes, uh, then it builds on itself. Right. It becomes uncool. And then I, the way that, and this was probably true of all sports, but you see it. I mean, I, I was uh, a couple of years ago. I wrote a piece about Robbie Cano and Dustin Pedroia, right? Mm-hmm. Two players who were probably at that time the two best second basemen in the league, in the American League. And I said in the piece, 
I don't know who's the better player. I have my opinion. My opinion is that Cano's the better player, but you know, I'm a Yankee fan, so I, that, yeah. that maybe is informing it. <laughs> and, if, and if you look at the numbers, they're pretty right. equal right. players. What's stor- shorthand cited some peeps, some quotes, uh, and articles is the different coverage. Yeah. Right? Cano is lazy. Now, Cano is a yeah. dark skinned Latino, right? right? But Cano is lazy. Right, Cano, it's natural talent. You look at Pedroia. Pedroia was a super high round draft pick. He went to I think USC. Like this guy's right. always been a superstar. Right. He's a great player. I mean, I'm sure, and they both work very hard because right. you have to do both those things. But the different portrayal right. of it, the kind of in the '70s, the treatment of guys like like uh, Richie Allen, mm-hmm. right. or Reggie Jackson, right, where it was this this kind of this, yeah. this, just racism yeah. about it, right? Vita Blue, right? right? So uh, I think that has hurt. That has made baseball less appealing. I don't know the extent to which that applies on sports. I don't follow other sports as closely. Mm-hmm. But right. all of that has, has contributed. Well, there was this famous debate in basketball about uh, athletes, you know. And natural athletes. Natural right. athletes. Right. You know, African-American players were athletic. You know, there was... Um, and Larry Bird's, you know, uh, the white players, they, they were more serious. If you read scouting reports, yeah. right... That was sarcasm, often, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they will often uh, make comparisons, right? So you're supposed right. to be... So, and they often compare if the kid is a kind of hard throwing, graceful lefty who's African American. Yeah, that's right. It's Vita Blue. Right. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, Vita Blue hasn't thrown a pitch in 30 years. He's right. a great right. player. I mean, really a great right. player. I love them. But, right. you know, so, and, and there was one scout, and I don't know what team he was with, who would always make it across right. racial boundaries just to point out, <laughs> right. you know, if you want to compare Robbie Cano to Rod Carew, right. you know, that's always the comment. Right. Now, these are very different players. players right. They're Absolutely. both great. Carew is a Hall of Famer, and, and yeah. by all measures, Parents that he's also was not well recently. Right. By all measures, people always say he's just a wonderful guy, yeah. Ron yeah. Carew. But Ron very different. He was a faster runner than than he was right. a much less powerful right. hitter. Fantastic, but an extraordinary bunter, bunter yeah. batting average. Yeah. You know, completely different. Cano had a great arm, and Carrick was a slugger. I mean, right. Right. big right. second baseman who could right. use more of a Jeff Kent, except he was right. left-handed. Was probably a better right. fielder. So, but who? So so the racial politics of all of this yeah. are, are are complicated. Um, so Tim, speaking right. of um, oh. speaking of racial policy, <laughs> that was actually I do have a link here. If you're, if you're looking for some way to smooth. When I was an exhibit guide, and I could talk about you know the welfare state in the U.S. that Russians didn't know about, I could talk about um, you know education and how that worked. And on the one issue where I made zero progress was on race relations. That was the one issue where I could talk about I could talk about you know. Uh, you know, all the problems on the one hand, but the progress, and, they you know, and it just went nowhere. Because that was just, a big propaganda piece. Right? Oh, yeah, that was, you know, there was just no denting that. Also, it was so far from their experience, you know, so it was a very easy thing to play on. And then there's no racism in Russia today. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> on, uh, yeah. Just on, on somewhat related yeah. to that, was your experience, uh, th- this, again, this is my limited experience yeah. at that time yeah. in Russia, in, uh, just after the Soviet yeah. Union, uh, the race issue yeah. and also a, a gay oh issue. yeah yeah that issue even today um, it's uh, it's unfortunate that it's become really politicized in that I think if Putin had not had this kind of conservative turn uh, conservative in a, in a social sense bulking up the, the Russian Orthodox Church you know, putting emphasis on building the family and the traditional family to the point where Pat Buchanan wrote this famous essay where he said, oh, is Putin one of us? Right. 
right? I don't, uh, I don't think Pat Buchanan is the only person on the right who's asking that question. No, no, but, the, but Buchanan asked it like a You're decade still, ago. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, in some ways, prescient piece. And because uh, uh, I don't think that Russian public opinion prior to this conservative turn was as kind of virulently kind of anti-gay or hostile but, but in the sense it, that it's, it's become. In so, my experience, and not, not so much in Russia, but in, yeah. particularly in Georgia, the anti-gay sentiment yeah. um, is nurtured and exploited by a broader, those who have a broader anti-West agenda. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think, you know, I, prior to this kind of anti-West turn, yes, there was, there was the normal, you know, level of, you know, homophobia, uh, of homophobia which you can see in lots, lots of places. Um, so, it's, so it is really kind of, you know, unfortunate because now, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, uh, it can be a very dangerous place uh, uh, for sexual minorities. So I want to ask a, a bigger picture question to you yeah. about, about this, which is, how did we get to this situation with Putin? And could it have been avoided? And this may be a three-part question. The second part question is, do you think he had a long-standing plan or just kind of, as George Washington Plunkett said, seen his opportunities and took them? And the third part of this is, since the last month in particular, the, there's been an acceleration in the Western media of the Putin is winning narrative. Oh, uh, I don't know that I'm 100% on board with that. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, yeah. on you know, is Putin winning? Because it yeah. seems like there's evidence on, certainly on both sides of that. Sure, sure, sure. Think those as a- so, so a bunch of questions. Let me unpack one. I, I don't think that there is a kind of detailed master plan. You know, Russia is you know, an important country that has you know, interests in its region that it has pursued for hundreds of years. So in that sense, yes, there is a master plan to uh, you know, to uh, you know, spread its influence, which is what China does, which is what Brazil does, which is what right. the U.S. does. In that sense, yes, you know, and it was always looking for ways to expand its influence. So yes, now how that comes about though gets in, gets interpreted very very differently. And what I think we've seen Putin do is exploit fissures that have been, uh, you know, kind of longstanding. So you have the um, you know, the problems within the European Union, right, that Putin has been able to kind of wedge, you know, the more pro-Russian, the more economically dependent on Russia countries from those that are less economically dependent, the split between the East European countries who were former satellites of the, the Soviet Empire who want a much harder line towards Russia against other countries, you know, Italy or France, for example, where there's a lot more support for better relations with Russia. And Putin has been able to play on that in a way that, you know, the Soviet leaders tried to do way back when. So, but the conditions in Europe are such that, you know, these strategies are a lot more effective. You know, the Greece bankruptcy, all of the fiscal problems within the European Union, the refugees, all of these things he's been able to uh, play on um, in, a, in a pretty smart way. Um, now, this notion about is Putin winning, I think, uh, to link our two discussions here, the sports metaphor is not a particularly good one here. <laughs> this is not necessarily a zero-sum game. Because I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the West and Russia, the West writ large and Russia, can make themselves better off. They can each make themselves worse off. And it's not the case, oh, if Putin is winning, therefore we must be losing. I don't think that's the right way uh, uh, to frame, uh, you know, to frame the issue. Um, you know, is Putin winning? Well, you know, if you think a country where the economy hasn't grown in the last five years, 
is winning. Uh, you know, a country where, you know, yes, you have this strong leader, but he's so strong that he doesn't want to have free and fair elections, that he doesn't want to open up the press to, to alternative voices that might, you know, put him in uncomfortable situations and make him much more accountable uh, uh, to, to his public. Um, a country where, you know, yes, you have, uh, uh, you know, the Russian speakers who have come back to Russia, but this is not a country uh, where, you know, the people see around the world as, oh, Amada, we want to be like Russia. You know, uh, I think for Although all of the leaders around the world, man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Erdogan has certainly uh, learned a fair bit from Mr. Putin and, uh, <laughs> you know, lots of other leaders, Modi in, in India and in China as well. You know, you have this mutual admiration society among these autocrats and they learn from each other and they... Um, but I think, you know, in general, if you look at, say, public opinion towards Russia on a global sphere, you know, Russia is a very unpopular country, and Putin is a leader who doesn't have a, uh, a, a lot of trust. And that's different from even, you know, four years ago in the U.S., where uh, a plurality of Americans thought that Russia was neither friend nor foe, and a lot of people, you know, I don't remember the numbers, 30 or 40 percent, thought that, you know, Russia was more a friend than a foe. You know, so, you know, that is, you know, very different from today, where apart from this, you know, blip, I think that, you know, within the Republican Party, yeah. a lot of them like Putin, which I think is really an anti-Obama right. sentiment rather than a pro-Putin uh, well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see we'll how enduring yeah. that is. We don't know what's going to happen that's right. in the next couple of months. Uh, uh, that's right. But I think, you know, one way to interpret that is that, you know, this is just, uh, you know, opinion, opinion leadership in an environment where people don't have lots of information. And as they learn a little bit more, maybe those views will you know, go back to their historic, you know, historical no. levels, so. So I want to maybe just wrap up a little bit here with giving you two a chance to ask each other questions, the things that have come up today, things that you've been thinking about, your own experiences. Sure. So I have one question that I wanted to ask. So sports movies are generally terrible. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a blanket statement that, that holds up pretty well. Yeah. Among sports movies, baseball movies seem to be somewhat better. Is that a fair statement, and uh, uh, would you agree? I, I would agree with that. I think it's, it's all... an easy uh, audience to yeah, tell, but... Exactly, uh, yeah, uh, exactly. I think movies and books also. Yeah. Oh, books, so, yeah. Some of the great, great books are baseball, quote-unquote, baseball books. Uh, and movies, I think there's, there's a ton of great baseball yeah. movies that are, that, that are somewhat under the radar. Like, right. I think one of the great... And again, base, this is baseball in quotes... Right. Because they're not—they're not really about baseball. But I, MLB Network in the off season when they have nothing to show, thank, thankfully sometimes they get the talking head geniuses mm. off the air and they th show other things. And uh, they were showing Bad News Bears recently. Bad News Bears, that's, that's a great that's, movie. That is a great movie. Fantastic movie. It probably yeah. could not be made today. Oh, absolutely. And it. Yeah. I thought that <laughs> that is a great movie. That could like stand with other right. terrific movies. So you put you that know? in a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. I, I showed it to my your son is old enough to watch Bad News Bears. Yeah. And I showed it to my kids when they were, you know, they played a lot of youth baseball and they they were a little amazed yes. at, at just how different things were, like their <laughs> coach, that they coach were people like beer. that. You know? that's right. yeah, that's what, and but it completely the characters are that's right. the, the, the storyline, it's it's a it's, it's a terrific. Very fantastic movie. Yeah. The only thing I object to, and this is a broader statement as well, is the sickly, snot-nosed kid, what's his name, <laughs> always 
It's Tim. <laughs> Timmy Lupus. <laughs> Timmy Lupus and the Bad News Bears. <laughs> Tiny Tim. Uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, you know, a little the crippled, yeah, the disabled Tim. Tim. Right? Tim lives to come. Tim lives to come. Is this not those kids who grew up to win two side other awards? But he's not the most you know, kind of imposing physical presence yeah. here. So anyway. Yes. Anyway. But, uh, but I digress. You know the, you know the, yeah. affirm, the, the affirmation, or those call those affirmations? Oh, yeah, right. Like, so there's right. one for Tim Lincecum, and it shows him as a little kid on the mound. Oh, yeah. And it says, and it says, and it says, um, go ahead, you can laugh on the bench. You'll be back there soon enough anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like four foot nine when he was 14, but striking everybody out. I think it's true, though. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm a movie fan. I'm not an insider, but I would guess a lot of it comes from either they're based on a book, so right. it was well written to begin with, or the screenwriter, in many cases, is a very good screenwriter who just loves baseball. So it's probably a nice combination to end up with good baseball movies, sports movies that are about baseball versus other things. Is that one Sugar? You know this one? Sugar, yeah. It's a great movie. Very good. But I, I think for film, and I'm, I have no insight, I'm just a consumer of film, I don't make them or anything, but where sports, the marriage of sports and film that has worked in the last 20 years we really see is documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, That's right. And I don't know that baseball is better or... Yeah. Worse, um, but you know, no, no, uh, the Doc Ellis. Yeah. Thing, oh yeah, yeah. Give him right. a chance to see it is right. is just fantastic. Excellent. And, we had them in the clubhouse. Uh, and you also had John on uh, for Hano. For, yeah, for Hano, which, uh, which was also good. I would like to make a little plug though, if I could, about a documentary, mm-hmm. uh, which is not baseball. Mm-hmm. He's actually a friend of mine, and you both have, may have mm-hmm. seen it, or it, it got a lot of publicity. It's not about baseball mm-hmm. in any way. Uh, I don't think he played baseball, but uh, my friend did. Mm. But nothing against Ken Burns, who I think is terrific. Mm -hmm. When I watched this other documentary, though, I said, Ken Burns is like a triple-A ball player compared Mm -hmm. to this. It's the O.J. Made in America documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that is... The the long... Yeah, yeah, not like the ABC... uh, No, like a six-hour one for me. Yeah, uh, Ezra Edelman is the... uh, I heard a great interview with him. With Ezra. On uh, on Marin's podcast. Hmm. Yeah, he, uh, uh, speaking of like good scouting, like a yeah. scouting report, so his father is uh, Peter Edelman, who was RFK's right-hand man, and his mother is Marion Wright Edelman, uh, oh, wow. so, and Ezra became Ezra. So, uh, just a little plug for OJ Made in America <laughs> as the, as maybe the only great non-baseball. I'll tell you <laughs> one, one OJ story that you may not have heard that oh. has a baseball angle, and you see it in that film, so they talk, OJ grew up at Churro Hill in, in San Francisco. And I don't know quite why, how the zoning worked at the time. They went to Gal- maybe it was a, like he was a, went to Galileo High School. And Galileo, as you can imagine, was in what had been long been an Italian neighborhood, right? That's why it was probably called Galileo, um, where he was a football star. Obviously, the field is still there. It's right near Ghirardelli Square, if you ever. Mm-hmm. And there had been. It is also where several, at least two Hall of Fame baseball players later became teammates on the Yankees. Went to high school. Tony Lazari and Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. The DiMaggio brothers all went there. It was a local school. So there was a bus, a 30 Stockton, that goes by there when I was a kid. And I'd go over to see my friends, starting in like middle school, and there was one you'd take all the time to Chinatown, whatever. And the one driver on that bus, you know, because when you get to that area, you get to Ghirardelli Square, North Beach, Chinatown. So it goes, what had previously just been going to ordinary kind of middle class neighborhoods now becomes, back then they were middle class neighborhoods, suddenly very touristy, right? 
So the he switches to San Francisco in the seventies. He switches to tour guide mode, and whenever he would pass Galileo High School, he would say, "Galileo High School." This is before O.J. Simpson. This is back when he's football star. Right. Alma mater of O.J. Simpson, Joe DiMaggio, and me. <laughs> <laughs> and he would keep driving the bus. But that's a great film. So, Jay, do you have any questions for Tim before we? Yeah, it's a, it's actually it's a, that wasn't my question, by the way. Uh, it was it's a very basic question. Uh, how recently have you been to uh, Russia? Well, I, I go to Russia several times a year. I was last there in June. Okay, so this is it's a very basic, but it's like a real-world question. When I was there in the 90s, I vividly remember the metro system. A, how beautiful it was, but B, those which they did not hear, have here at the time. Again, we get to a clock. Everything comes back to clocks. It's not about baseball. They had these clocks until the next train, and... It was to the second. second test, right? Today, coming up on the subway from <laughs> Greenwich Village to yeah. the Upper West Side, and this uh, happens all the time, I've learned that if the board says arriving now, That's arriving and now are both lies. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if in current no, Russia, yeah. if the trains are still running like they did Mo back now, then. Now, Moscow, I, I love going to Moscow. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's a very dynamic city. It's, uh, you know, in, in, it's in, in the last probably 10 years, it's, it's become a much better managed city. Um, and the subway is one of the great wonders. I mean, I never take a car in Russia. It just, part because of the drivers, which are... are, are traffic the is traffic no is, is The traffic has become uh, really you know, difficult to manage and very unpredictable. So I always take uh, uh, the metro. And, uh, you know, it runs... You know, every 90 seconds, you know, there's another train, so you don't have to wait very long. But one of the things I love about the, the Moscow Metro, and I appreciate it every time I take my son, uh, uh, you know, to school in the morning when people hold the doors open in the subway right. in New York City, and the train can't move until they, until they close the door, and the conductor comes on and says, you in the back, uh, close the door so we can get moving. You know, when we wait and wait, and the passengers all get angry. In Moscow, that's not a problem. The doors close. <laughs> they close whether your arm is there, whether your head is there. The doors close, and everybody knows it. So there is no waiting around to close the doors in Moscow. It just goes. So it runs very, very well. So that's the, my plug for the Moscow Metro. And there was always a big propaganda piece during the Cold War. Oh, yeah. So you know, that's, that's right. The subways... They were so safe. They were so 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 beautiful. And you know, in, you know, Moscow they, they they do run very well. Although, you know, the New York City subway I think is impressive in its own way. Well, I tell you, I I'm, I whenever I get upset at the New York City subway, I remember when they opened the BART in the Bay Area. Oh, and we had a like we we were in middle school time. We went to like a, a yeah assembly. I guess is what you would call it in the auditorium. There were, we saw a film about the making of BART. This was a, went under the San Francisco Bay. This was a big deal. This was forty years ago or so. And and this was gonna this was so much better than the New York City subway system, which at that time was just a caricature of urban decay. Right. Let me tell you something: the New York City subway system won. <laughs> there is no question today. If you had to get around on BART, it's expensive. They haven't renovated it since I saw that movie. It's, it's slow. It doesn't really go places. It doesn't run twenty four hours. When I was a kid, I remember uh, we were Giants fans, my brother and I, but uh, we were also Yankee fans. Because my mother was from New York, so I remained. Those remained my two teams. So we go to a lot of Giants games, and we would only go to Oakland to see um, the uh, 
the Yankees when they came to play the A's. And I distinctly remember st- like having to leave the ballpark because the last plane left at minute. It was a 20th doubleheader. And the goose was pitching for the Yankees uh-huh. and, and throwing like just really beautifully. And, and we, had, we left the ballpark because we knew that if we, we had right. no way of getting home, we call my mother at 12, 15, we're in Oakland. Right, 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 right. You know, this is probably 80, 81. And, and we watched, we left, and then we watched from outside like a hole in the fence, like it was the 30s. Him strike out like one or two guys more, and then just sprinted <laughs> along with. And back then, the funny thing was, back then the A's were. This was when they were just getting. This was maybe seventy nine, so they were still pretty bad. So, you would go. The A's games was all New Yorkers coming yeah. to, when they played the Yankees. Right. So everyone was like, you saw more New Yorkers there than you anywhere else in the Bay Area. And, and right. so they're not exactly the most kind of. They're a little more kind of on the. Uh, outspoken, more aggressive edge than a typical San Franciscan at that time. Just sprinting and swearing you know, for, the sub, for the Bart. So. so I think we ranked Moscow, New York, Bart. Is that, is that well, Jay and Tim, thank you so much for your oh, time. Thank you. It was yeah, a pleasure. Thank you. It was a lot of yeah. fun. A lot Love of fun. Thank, thank you. Thanks again to Tim and Jay for a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to stay in touch with us, the best way is Tim's Twitter handle is at Timothy M. Fry. Jay's is at Bergino Baseball, and mine is at Lincoln Mitchell.